The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Besides Still Waters. Glad you could join me as we talk about origins, substitutes, and results. Origins, substitutes, and results. Our conversation is uh, focused on Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. But before we just jump right in, I just want to remind you, wherever you are at the uh, hearing of my voice, that this podcast is uh, devoted to helping Christians from all denominations, all those who have put their trust in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for the forgiving of all sins, but also for developing a constant, life-changing walk with God. And so we are committed to helping believers across a wide spectrum to foster a genuine, life-changing walk with God. And so uh, the target that we really want to uh, aim for is how to live one's life with a daily consciousness that I am holding the hand of God through every circumstance that comes into my life. That's the key. that We're able to touch the hand of the one who governs the universe. And so, uh, as we shift our focus to Matthew 15, uh, the first 20 verses, the Lord Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, and they, of course, were his chief antagonists uh, in that, uh, in this particular circumstance, the disciples failed to wash their hands, and from the Pharisaical perspective, they were transgressing the tradition that was given to these leaders by their predecessors, uh, whom they called the ancients, or the tradition of the elders. And so what we have is, uh, in their example, a religion that is encased in traditions. And this religiosity even boiled down to how they related to parents, you know, close relationships, down to their very attire. However, what we have to address in our conversation today is this. What happens when the origins are changed and something else is substituted in its place? What flows from the life. Now, in spiritual things, the instant we make a change, there's going to be a result. 
always will. It's always going to happen. It always has happened or always will happen. So in this particular circumstance, the challenge was on the point of hygiene. The washing of their hands before they ate. And of course, the disciples of our Lord Jesus were, in a sense, guilty of not washing their hands. Now, if we were to approach this from a common sense perspective, well, you know, good hygiene maintains good health. But apparently, this habit evolved into some sort of a codified action that was associated, associated with pleasing God. Now, how it sprung from hygiene to, to moral issue uh, is a stretch of the imagination, but essentially that's what they have made it out to be. The failure to wash one's hands becomes a moral issue affecting one's relationship with God. However, the Pharisees didn't frame it as, uh, you know, quote unquote, failure to wash your hands is in direct contradiction to the command of God for holiness. You know, they didn't make a, uh, a one-time statement like that. They just challenged the Lord Jesus that they weren't doing what was handed down to them by the elders. They just weren't doing it. But again, my friends, what was really at stake was a standard practice of hygiene was now codified, if you will, into a moral issue. And so Jesus turned the question back to them and reframed it by accurately stating, in a prioritized fashion, why do you also transgress the commandment of God in order to fulfill your traditional teaching? So their perspective was, the priority is the traditional teaching. Jesus, as the Son of God, second in the Trinity, reframed it where the commandment of God is given its prioritized position and the traditions were secondary to it. Now, that's going to make more sense as we go along in our conversation. But I'm, I'm, I'm presenting it this way to have you begin to think, well, are there, are there actions and behaviors in my life that I have, in a sense, codified as a moral issue, that it has moral bearing? And of course, the question is, well, does the word of God, does the, the, do the scriptures frame my codified statements and beliefs as moral issues? Do the scriptures support that position? And so this is the fundamental question of the day. Uh, and we, we see this in, in um, uh, verses 5 and 6. Okay, verses 5 and 6 simply says, but you say, uh, for example, this is the Lord Jesus uh, speaking to these men. And he says, well, God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. And he that speaks ill of father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father 
or mother, it is a gift. That is, it is Corbin. So in a sense, what my parents would have been profited by has been given to God. And the Lord Jesus went on to say, and he, that is the person who says it is a gift, he shall in no wise honor his father or mother. And here's the key. You've made void the commandment of God on account of your traditional teaching. And that's the problem right here. We have voided, they have voided, and sometimes we void the commandment of God, the the specific call of duty. You know, for example, the scripture says, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, or rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Uh, Be anxious for nothing, but let your request be made known unto God, and so forth. So there's certain, um, there's an advocating of, of bringing our matters to God. And trusting his uh, providential, loving, fatherly care for us. But some of us become anxious. And we say, well, you know, it's only human. (laughs) And yes, it's true. It is only human. But God is not going to command and request an action, a response, that on its face will fail automatically because, well, it's only human. I want to remind you of a previous podcast when we were, we were considering you know, God passing by. And when we think of uh, Peter walking on the water, well, we could say in nature nobody walks on water. Of course, that's impossible. You have to float. There, there are certain principles of, of, of nature and certain laws of nature, of buoyancy and so forth. Well, they, you, know, you have to have certain um, uh, 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 characteristics in the dynamic for a thing to float. But guess what? It is recorded in scripture that the Lord Jesus not only walked on water, but he did so during a storm while the disciples were uh, in peril for their lives. And one, that is Peter, uh, having enough presence of mind uh, after the Lord Jesus bid them not to be fearful, they thinking he was an apparition, uh, Peter calls out to him, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come. Well, guess what? This man, the second one, walked on water. Well, if the Lord Jesus is able to command the forces of nature to make water substantive enough for a man to walk on water, well, when we are given a command, our humanity becomes an irrelevant factor. Why? Because the grace of God is made available to do the deed. And so although these men, these Pharisees, voided the commandment of God and inserted, substituted something else from what the original intent was, they actually canceled the the moral requirement that the word of God places on all human beings, but especially the devotee. And so again, the the fundamental question of the day, particularly in the fourth to the sixth verse approximately, is that the action that I do at this very instant, is this action, or I should say the question of the day, but is this action associated with some divine mandate on my life? Or... Have I nullified 
not only the word of God, but quenched the working of the spirit of God in my life. You see, we have to be so careful. It's not just that they have um, uh, removed the original intent of the spirit of God in the scriptures, but substituted a traditional teaching, a traditional practice. And the end result is now that person could not be held morally bound. I mean, they still are because God doesn't excuse ignorance, but they could not hold themselves morally bound to do good for their parents. And, and, and the thought, we're going to go a little further with the thought, but Jesus extracted and expanded the problem before them. And that is what God commanded, for example, towards honoring one's father and mother, mother as, as we are told in Exodus 21.17, that if an Israelite were to speak ill or to be abusive towards one's parents, then they should die the death. But the leaders and their predecessors were able to create a way, a method to forego blessing their parents and to make the very action that they have placed as its substitute appear to be a religious act. I mean, it's really amazing. And, and sometimes throughout the world, uh, there are certain belief systems that there are certain foods one ought not to eat if one is a, a devotee of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we will get to the point of what commends us to God, what puts us in favor with God. But I digress for the moment. But the point is, these men were able to create a way that, that the blessing that their parents would have derived from the command of God was removed completely. And something else was substituted. And so at the end of the day, this deed, this commodity, Corban, as it is called, would go into the coffers of the temple <laughs> over which they, the Pharisees, had the oversight. <laughs> so there's an ulterior motive here also, <laughs> when you think about it. Okay, now we're not told this, but they're the ones that governed the temple activity in all its forms, to the sacrifices, the buying of selling of animals, and so forth, uh, for the sacrifices, uh, the, 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 the offerings of the people, okay? They governed all of that, and they were powerful men. So at the end of the day, <laughs> it all funneled back to them. All the Corbin <laughs> came back to them, into their hands. And so although they were nullifying the word of God, they were also taking advantage of the good that God intended for parents and filling their coffers with those blessings. They were, in fact, in fact saying, the profit that my parents would have derived will be given to God, but their interest was not in God. On the surface, this appears noble because most people would look at it and say, well, that's a good thing. We're giving to God. Who else is greater than God? But from the standpoint of obedience, it had 
what, what they inserted, what they substituted, had more power to nullify the command of God in one stroke. The divine intention, which originally was to honor father and mother, was now substituted by an action that on its surface appeared to honor God. But it was, in effect, a substitute for the commandment of God. And this is key because if we look in our world today, what comprise modern day Christianity? There are a myriad of substitutes that people have framed, teachers have framed, religious leaders have framed as being a moral requirement by God but on its surface, it appears that way. But when we examine it and in contrast with the scriptural mandate, it is found to be the commandments of men. And so here is one of their religious hurdles, which any person faces. And, and this is where it, 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 it's a very subtle problem. But what we're dealing with here, my friends, is at its core our fleshly fallen nature. This is the problem. Our fleshly fallen nature. The Pharisees were operating from this paradigm that the flesh is dominating their thoughts, their words, their deeds. That fallen nature is what's taking precedent and driving these actions. And if, as the scripture said, if a man seeks to be declared righteous by some sort of law-keeping, they will ultimately fail. Romans 3 and 23 says that no flesh, none, no flesh shall be declared righteous in God's sight by law-keeping. Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, of course, they did something additional to the law by nullifying it altogether. But at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is to set up a code of, of, of codify actions, a legalistic system that they could say, if you do this, you are righteous before God. And if we were to go to the average person who says, well, uh, you know, there are certain tenets of the law that I keep. But if the objective of the heart is to commend oneself to God, to put oneself in uh, an acceptable light in God's presence by keeping of the law, you have missed the purpose of the law. It's a schoolmaster. It brings us to Christ. It tells us, I can't keep the law. It identifies that I'm a sinner. We are told in Romans 7, 5 that the motions, the evidences of sin are made manifest through the law, which ultimately condemns us. The law reveals to us that we cannot keep it because we are by nature sinners. We miss the moral mark that God 
has for us. That's every man, woman, boy, girl. Paul could even say in, 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 in the seventh chapter in his letter to the Roman believers um, that uh, in, in me, there's the willing, the will to do the will of God, if you will, is present in me. But the wherewithal, the power, the ability to perform that which is good is absent. And that is the lot of every human being, and especially the devotee, the believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sooner or later, we come to that place when we see our depravity and we acknowledge just what Paul has acknowledged. The will is present in me. I want to do well. I want to do good. I want to please God. But the wherewithal to perform it, it's absent from me. And that is why, my friends, we have in us the very presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Paul, in some of his writings, I think it was to the church at Ephesus, prayed and was praying that they would be strengthened with all might by his Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with might, with dunamis. By his spirit, it is the spirit of God that is the enabling agent in our lives. But sadly, and maybe it's good that we see this, but as Paul says, the willing is present in me, but the wherewithal to perform that which is good is absent. It's absent. And so the uh, pharisaical leaders undoubtedly would have encountered the same distasteful experience in trying to keep the law. You know, when you read the Gospels, I, I, I think they just got to the point where they just gave up and they just, they just did things as they wanted to. They could contemplate murder, if you will, because on several occasions they contemplated how they might do away with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it never bothered their conscience. They were totally depraved, completely sold out to their depraved nature. They were simply unable to keep the law and they couldn't see that they couldn't do it. And what better way to change the dynamic than by changing the origins, knowing what God commands, and in, in our attempt to better understand it, we come up with a methodology that nullifies it. We find ways to justify the wrong we're going to do, and then we frame it as though it's something good. You know, there are times I've, I've known in, in my Christian life, uh, I've had friends who have, uh, not, not in the state that, you're, that I'm originally in and making this podcast, but I've had Christian friends that weren't married, but that they, you know, they had a, a cohabiting uh, relationship. <laughs> they were sharing house. There are uh, a variety of ways to state the the. Uh, their arrangement, but essentially they were pretending to be married while not being married. And the justification is we love each other and we're in a committed relationship. Well, that's not a committed relationship. A committed relationship is when a man is willing to not only give up his freedom and a woman, 
and to be for no other but each other, not only legally, but before God and before witnesses, to love, cherish, honor, and so forth each other, till death do us part, sickness and health, etc., etc. But, you know, my friends, you know, found a way, although they, you know, claim to be Christians, they found a way to justify the wrong by reframing it, reframing it and saying, well, we are committed to each other and we're committed to love each other and so forth and so on. But they were really in a relationship where anyone can get up the next morning and just walk out the door and there's no legally binding responsibility. And the Pharisees essentially were doing the same thing. They came up with a codified traditions and codified them in such a way that the word of God was simply nullified and the things that God commanded couldn't be done. And Jesus told them plainly in the sixth verse that they have made void the command of God on account of their traditional teachings. The commandment was robbed of its substance and power. So this, this really brings us to the sum of the problem. Okay, let's, let's just sort of boil it down to the, to the, the, the molasses, the thick part of the liquid. Just, you know, where does that bring us? From the perspective of the Spirit of God, uh, the Lord Jesus captures what Isaiah prophesied roughly 700 years or so before. And he says, this people, and here's the problem for many of us now, please pay close attention. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the ordinances of men. They honor me with their lips, it sounds good. Their heart is far from me. My intent really isn't to please God. And the, the, the religious expression, the expression of their faith that they were intending, the Spirit of God said, it's empty, it's vain. Why? Because they have substituted Ordinances of men, the things that men practice and do and endorse that have nothing to do with the mind and will of God as it is explained and given to us in Holy Writ. We are looking at clear evidence of the working of the flesh. That is the fallen human nature attempting to achieve the holiness of God and it cannot be done. Paul wrote to the church at Rome that they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh. And again he said, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, someone will say, well, you know, you're, you're judging me. Well, you know, throughout Scripture, we see that the Spirit of God indwelling the believer witnesses to the believer. For example, we are told in John's Gospel that he, he witnesses that we are the children of God. He, he gives inward, inner confirmation that I belong to God. I am his child. He also gives 
inner confirmation when we are walking in his will. He affirms and confirms to us that we are in the light of God's will. And so I ask you, my friends, are you, am I guilty of substituting a standard that is man-made or that finds its, its origins in traditional or familiar practices, resulting in nullifying the word of God? Are we guilty of that? Do we quench the Spirit of God? Why? Because we're not really following through with what he commands, but find ways to justify our wrong behavior. What, what is the priority that God has placed on my actions? Actions that governs my home, my work, my body as his temple, as I gave the example of my friends, you know, the, the Spirit of God indwells both of them, male and female. And yet they were in a relationship that appeared on the surface to be a marital union when in fact it really wasn't. They were just cohabiting. And so there are certain actions that should govern my, my work, home, life, my body as a temple, and other areas that the Word of God touches. And yet, have I nullified the work of the Spirit of God by substituting a different standard? And oftentimes we do. Oftentimes we do. And so now Jesus proceeds to deal with the results and he strips away the veneer covering this traditional teaching and he shows it for what it really is. And he says so in verse 11. He says, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man because what enters into the mouth goes forth from the mouth to the stomach and then comes out as waste. But it's what comes out of man that is what defiles the man. What comes out of man. To state it clearly, he says, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what goes forth out of his mouth, this defiles the man. It comes from within. The defiling agent, the thing that, that, that renders us incapable of having a, a sacred walk with God is internally driven. It comes from in me. So you say, well, what makes me holy or acceptable to God? Or conversely, what makes me unholy or unacceptable or defiled in the sight of God? This is the key question. This is what their original challenge was meant to address by the washing of hands or not. It was irrelevant. The, the hands just, the washing of the hands touched the external part of themselves. It didn't come from the heart. And if they recognized this, they would have realized that what they were doing was of none effect. Failure to wash one's hands does not defile the believer in the sight of God. So firstly, we have to make a distinction between what affects the flesh, that is our physical human body, and what affects the intangible part of us, that is 
our soul, our spirit. And Jesus gives the anatomical viewpoint, if you will, in verses 10 and 11. So if you recall, as an example in the Old Testament, when Samuel was tasked with anointing a new king and was commanded to go to the house of Jesse, the sons of Jesse were to present themselves to the prophet. And they were told to sanctify themselves. Samuel told them, sanctify yourselves so that they could participate in you know, the, the sacrificial meal that they would have with him. And as their sons, you know, sort of paraded themselves before Samuel, Eliab, I think the eldest, when he passed, Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So he looked at this young man and he probably has good bearing, looks like a king. But Jehovah said to Samuel, look not on his countenance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is also the same problem with holiness. The Lord Jesus brought the issue clearly to the surface by telling his disciples Everything that enters into the mouth finds its way into the stomach, and this is cast forth as waste. But the things which go forth out of the mouth come out of the heart. Those are the things that defile the man. For And this is what he says, out of the heart comes forth, listen carefully, evil thoughts. How many of us have had evil thoughts? Guess what the end result is? I am defiled. <laughs> Murders. Well, we may not have actually committed the crime, but we have thought things about people that from the perspective of the Spirit of God is murderous in its origin. Adultery. Many are guilty. A lot of men could say, oh my goodness, on a daily basis. Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed the act already. So we see what the defiling agents are. And he goes on, fornications, theft, false witnessings, blasphemies. Even God is affected <laughs> by what springs out of us. These are the things which defile man. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile man. So in your going around and living your life, and sometimes you'll come across people that said you can't eat certain types of foods because it's forbidden and so forth and so on, that does not commend a human being to God. And we'll, we'll end on a more positive note, but for our purposes, it's what springs from within, what springs from the heart, the intangible commodities are the very things that interfere with my walk with God. We have to be mindful of this. So the moral flaw springs from man's fallen human nature. That's the defiling origin from within. They originate in my heart. And the things that interfere with my relationship with God and hamper my walk of faith are not external but internal springing from the heart. These are the things which mar my sensitivity and openness to the work and working of the Holy Spirit in my life. You know, I want you to think of it as you have a guest in your home. 
and you are exerting a, a significant amount of energy to create an environment that that guest will feel at home with you. Walking with God is like that. We want to cultivate an inner experience and walk and disposition such that the Spirit of God is at home in me. He works freely through me. He manifests the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ in my mortal body. And so people instinctively find ways to, to mitigate and nullify divine precepts, which, which help to govern our conduct. Why? By substituting a, a different tradition, a man-made precept, a generally accepted social practice. And then they excuse away the command of God to satisfy one's fleshly lusts. So we're, we're sort of winding down now. So for clarification, <laughs> now let, let me be clear. A wholesome diet has positive physical and mental effects, long-term and short-term. So we should eat healthily. We should practice good hygiene. And we even find principles of, of healthy eating and, and hygiene. Like when we go back to the uh, Le Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, you'll find that, that the, the, you know, they, there was a certain amount of cleanliness that was uh, required. Okay, it was codified. So don't misunderstand. Were certain washings, like the, the priestly garments and, and the priests themselves who would officiate the sacrifices, they had to be clean, they had to be washed. But they were performing a very specified duty. But what the Pharisees were doing was something totally different. You just didn't wash your hands before a meal and you were considered to have broken the law. No, my friends. They were off base. And so, as I said, you know, there are certain good practices that, that have benef uh, benefits to us, both short and long term, when we find these principles in Scripture. However, where we have to draw the line is in answering this question. What behaviors commend me to God or interfere with my relationship to God? That's the key. What behaviors commend me to God or interfere with my relationship with God. The Lord Jesus gives us, as I mentioned, a condensed list of behaviors that renders a man unclean, unfit, unholy for fellowship with God. And Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, gave a similar, slightly more expanded list. He states, for example, immorality. Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, fractions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And he says things that are similar to these. So there's a long list of behaviors that clearly demonstrate that my life is out of control, that the Spirit of God doesn't have me. These are the evidences of corrupt human nature and they are displays of that inborn, inbred depravity that all human beings are plagued with. And for the devotee, the disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be even uh, uh, more watchful. 
These can only be overcome by the work of the Holy Spirit to give power and victory over these practices. We don't have it in us. Remember what we read in uh, um, uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul said, the willing is in me, but the wherewithal to do, I don't find it. It's not there. And that is why the Spirit of God is in us, my friends. That is why we look to him to provide the grace to obey the command. Because we know it's not in me. And so Paul counters this laundry list of evidence of the human depraved condition. He counters with identifying the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to bear in mind that it is called fruit because we, you and I, don't produce these behaviors. But they are characteristics and evidences of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, and most importantly, evidences of a human being who has yielded to his presence and grace. Evidences of a human being who has yielded himself to the Holy Spirit's presence and power and grace in his life. And we, the believer, the disciple, the devotee, become conduits, conduits, conduits of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in us. We are simply branches. We're joined, connected to the vine, but we are conduits of that sacred, holy life flowing in us by the presence and power of the Spirit of God and and the Holy Spirit in us through the Word of God produces a transformed character. And this transformed character evidences itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul clearly says that against these behaviors, there is no law. And then he drives the issue home by saying that those of us who belong to Christ Jesus have done what? Crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. So there's something else that is going on in, in the life of the believer. There is an application of the work of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I take that place by faith that I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. That is the position of faith of the believer. Now, if we don't believe that we've been crucified, I assure you, we will see the evidences of that old nature every day. But every day I take my position by faith that I, when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. You'll find a similar truth in Romans chapter 6, that we were identified with him in his death, buried with him, raised up with him. Paul even said to the Roman Christians, Reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified. That old nature has been judged in me. Now, if I don't believe that, it will show itself clearly that it's alive and well. But he says to the same Roman Christians in Romans 8 that if you, through the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. It is the Spirit of God who empowers the believer to put these behaviors to death. 
because we have been crucified. And so in closing, the Pharisees changed the original plan of God by, if you will, inserting a substitute, a substitute standard. And from that substitution, they were now behaving in a manner that rendered them incapable of having a walk with God. But let it not be so with you and me, my friends. Those of us who endeavor to walk with God, to have a, a vital, dynamic relationship with the living God, as we always say, to walk with God beside still waters, to quiet our hearts in His presence and ask Him for grace to live this impossible Christian life. The Spirit of God would have us to live lives yielded to His holy presence and guided by the Word of God, empowered by Him, that we would come forth as lights in this dark world. Oh, my friends, this is my prayer for you and for me today that God by his Spirit would so empower me and fill me and you that the net result is that his life would flow through us, just branches, conduits, showing the very character of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so with you today as we all endeavor to walk with God beside still waters. Thank you for joining Besides Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Besides Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.